can we um, give a round of applause to our speaker tonight, Christy Mayer. Um, Christy, come on up. Uh, Christy, welcome, and thank you so, so much for uh, being here tonight. Thank you for your time, for your uh, input, and um, it's great to have you here tonight. Uh, can I ask you, uh, how did you become a Christian? Oh, that's actually quite a deep question, Jamie, um, to start with. Thanks so much for asking. I, um, I became a Christian when I was about probably 16 years old, but in the lead-up to that, my dad died very suddenly and quite tragically when I was about 10. He literally went to um, post the letter died on the way to the, the post box. And um, after that, I had all these big questions, you know, how can a good God exist and yet this happen? My mum was a Christian, still is, and um, I took all my questions to her. So a lot of what we're looking at this evening, like how do we actually form questions, how do we respond to questions, was a huge part of, of my coming to, to know the love of God for myself. So it was really kind of through my dad's death that I started with a lot of anger, moved through that, and then receive the love of Jesus um, in some ineffable way that I can't actually describe, but it was through that. Wow, and so that, and so that happened for you at 16? Yeah. Brilliant, and, um, and, and you've been following um, um, Jesus ever since. Very weekly, yeah. Very weekly, and um, tell us, what do you do during your week today? <laughs> well, I have a lot of houseplants, so uh, I spend quite a bit of it actually watering them. I think they're about 30, 30 houseplants. Anybody have more than that? Come on, there has to be somebody, please. <laughs> Put me out my Can misery. anyone improve on 30? Do you want to actually own up to that? No. <laughs> um, I think that's actually, an achievement. It's an achievement, isn't it? And literally, it probably takes me about 45 minutes to water them. Literally, I have to pick them up and then take them all the way to the kitchen. And then I go, and it's quite a long apartment. Is so this I on a daily of, basis? Well, no, it's more once a week. But you I'm know. betraying my, my lack of care for plants. Um, I think most <laughs> things die. Um, but but, um, but so, 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 so once a week, once a week. Yeah, once 45 a week. minute session. Feels like the whole week, but yeah, that's 40, yeah, 45 minutes. Okay, so minutes. if we've got any volunteers here tonight to help you with... with... Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, great. Just sign up at the door. And, and apart from watering plants, um, what do you do? <laughs> I, um, I spend a bit of my time teaching, so I teach a little bit in philosophy and evangelism, ethics, and then the rest of my time, well, there isn't that much time outside of that, but I should be spending it um, trying to finish my doctorate, which is taking a very long time indeed. And what's your, what's your doctorate in? That's a great question. <laughs> Uh, what is it in? It's been so long, Jamie. I think it's in epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. Like, how do we know what we know? And I'm looking at this guy called Michael Polanyi, who's a Hungarian scientist turned philosopher, and he's just kind of shifted, like, the, the tectonics when it comes to knowing, and it's quite exciting. So I'm, I'm digging into that, and what does that mean for us? And applying that, this is very dull, isn't it? I'm going to keep going. Yeah, and applying that <laughs> to the continental analytic divide in philosophy. Wow. Very Sounds impressive. Good, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not every Asking Wednesday evening I hear um, epistemology in. Yeah, wow, amazing. <laughs> um, brilliant. And, and, and just so everyone knows, so you are, so during the week, you're a research fellow oh, and yeah. lecturer in philosophy, ethics, and apologetics at Oak Hill College. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Um, can we pray for you? Please. Yeah. Let's pray for, for Christy. Father, we thank you uh, for revealing yourself to Christy, even amidst um, so much pain. And God, thank you that um, amidst her questions, uh, that uh, you met with her and that you changed her life. And God, thank you um, for all that you've put into her heart and into her mind. And thank you for her ability to, to communicate 
that to us. And uh, God, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to, um, to, to speak to her and to speak through her and to, to lead and guide her as she speaks. And God, would you uh, help each one of us to be very attentive uh, to uh, what it is that you want to say to us tonight, uh, how you want us to be. And God, thank you um, that uh, all our questions uh, can be used by you and all the questions that we hear can be used by you. Um, so God, would you just open our eyes uh, and expand our thinking and our horizons of, of what it is that you want to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Jamie. And hello again, everyone. It's such a joy to be with you. I was so excited about today. I've been telling all my friends um, North London that I get to go south of the river, so I'm really excited. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Um, great. So what we're going to do this evening is have a little look at questions. Like, how do we use questions in evangelism? Hmm. Um, and then how does that actually help us to then respond to people's questions and to our own questions um, as we do that. So I'm, I'm really excited. So I hope you've come with questions. But more than that, what we're going to look at is how to ask questions rather than answer them. So um, before we do that, what I'd love you to do is on your phone or perhaps on the handout, just take a minute or two, um, actually maybe more 10 seconds, just think of um, the people either in your workplace or in your family, your friendship group, who you are just praying that the Lord would reveal himself um, to. If you just write down one or two names, and we're going to think about those two people as we, as we go through this evening. Okay. Maybe, maybe names will come to you um, as we go on if they haven't just yet. Now, I don't know how you felt kind of walking in the doors this evening or even hearing that there's an evening on like questions, or questions of faith. Um, I think most of us dread, I know I do, dread the E word. Um, do you know what the E word is? Can you say it? evangelism yeah hushed hushed tones evangelism yeah I know I, I dread it too because the minute you say something like that you just think gosh if I don't know the right answer to this question then I'm going to get this very wrong indeed and I'm going to have mucked up in some really cosmic intergalactic way um, God's ability to be able to reveal himself um, through the power of his spirit to this particular person you know perhaps Perhaps you just feel that pressure just a little bit more. We can get it very wrong if we don't get it very right. I hope what we're going to see this evening is we can just take the pressure off of that a little bit. We can let, let all the air go as we start to look at questions. Because perhaps now is actually a really um, amazing time for us to be thinking about um, who Jesus is as we reflect, uh, receive, um, and rejoice in him, particularly after COVID, particularly as there's a war going on um, right now in Ukraine. And this brings up so many questions, doesn't it? I'm sure you've been having lots of questions um, in your own, in your either university or in your workplace, wherever it may be. But now is just such a great time for us to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Because unless we start with his goodness, when we come to think about questions, then all this would be, all this would do for you is just be um, another checklist, you know, something you have to do, like evangelism, you know, tick. And this is what I have to do to be a good Christian. You know, it's just another seminar to attend because Connect Group isn't on this evening. And, you know, you might be thinking that, and that's okay. Because it's only as we taste and see God's goodness um, to us that we'll want others to taste and see his goodness to them too. So more on this a little bit later. But for now, what I'd love you to do is kind of talk. We're going to be talking a lot this evening. I hope that's okay. Just talk to the people next to you. Um, what are your fears when it comes to evangelism? What do you fear? Do you have any fears? 
Um, and why don't we ask questions in evangelism? You might ask lots of questions. My hunch is that maybe for most of us, we might not do. So if, if you're more on that, I, I tend not to ask questions when I'm asked a question. Why might not uh, we ask those questions? Why might asking questions be scary? And then what question do you dread being asked? You know, there's usually one question, isn't there? What is the question you think, oh no, I really hope this person doesn't ask me this. What is that? So just a couple of minutes, just chat with the people around you. What do you fear? Um, why might it be scary to ask questions? What is your nightmare question? I'm going to ask you <laughs> if anyone's brave enough to kind of either shout out or there might be microphones going around. What do you fear about sharing Jesus either in the workplace with your colleagues or with friends or family? Any particular fears? Shout them out if you can. Rejection, thank you so much. Yes, yeah, we fear being rejected, as in rejected in terms of relationship, them rejecting us. Yeah, brilliant, thank you so much. Sorry, what's your name? Martine, nice to meet you, thanks so much. Does someone have something over here? It's the hot button topics, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So apathetic friends, you have to <laughs> probably get them at the right moment to actually ask you certain questions. They don't, they don't tend to ask. Yeah, very good. Please, please bank that. If we don't talk about that, I'd love to chat more about that in the Q&A later. And sorry, what's your name? Luke, really nice to meet you. Um, was there another question over here? Not question, thought? Did someone ask? Fear of losing your job. Yeah, absolutely. And what in particular do you fear about that? What's the concern that you say something? Yeah, yeah. What does it look like to speak? And then what does it look like to stand firm and, and not cower if there are times and opportunities where it's wise to speak? Yeah, that's a very, very difficult question to discern wisely what it looks like to act in those situations. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And sorry, what's your name as well? Julianne, thanks so much. Okay, let's move on. So what are the, why might it be quite scary asking questions? Any thoughts on that? Yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Again, it's rejection, isn't it? A fearing exclusion. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Ah, oh. <laughs> what kind of questions do you ask? <laughs> but absolutely, there is that concern, isn't there? Like, what if I've misunderstood this and I'm asking you a question and I'm now kind of just taking you on this like merry little kind of trail away from actually the good stuff, which may have been what you wanted to talk about in the first place. Yeah, thank you so much. And sorry, what's your name? Emma, thank you. And sorry, what was your name, sir? Simon, thanks so much. I'm sure there are lots and lots of things that, um, that may have come to mind. Here's a few more. You might just not know what to say. Like, what if, what if you ask a question and they ask you a question back and then you're just like, I've got no idea what to say in response to this, so I'm just going to keep asking questions. And um, hopefully what we'll see this evening is that asking questions isn't a cop-out. It is a Christ-centered approach to sharing his goodness with others. You might also be thinking, well, you know, I only have one shot. There's only one opportunity. The pressure is on. So I'm not going to ask a question. I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you very quickly who Jesus is and what he's done, and I'm going to walk away, probably run away, actually. Um, and also, it just makes us really vulnerable, doesn't it, asking questions. You're making space there for the conversation to continue in some way. And you just think, I don't know where this is going to go. This could go in a very interesting direction that I just don't, I have no control over this whatsoever. 
And so we can be very wary of using questions if it means that we might never get to Jesus or we might never get to the cross. There are so many reasons. And one of them could just be a lack of love. I was reading this the other day. There's this quote here from um, uh, Douglas Coupland. I don't know if you can read that. From Hay Nostradamus. He writes, this is a work of fiction, there can be an archness, a meanness in the lives of the saved, an intolerance that can color their view of the weak and lost. It can make them hard when they ought to be listening, judgmental when they ought to be contrite. And it's interesting because we might think the same thing, actually, about those who don't yet know Jesus. Maybe they'll think that we're being intolerant. Maybe we think that they'll be hard um, as, we, as we share these things with them. But perhaps the reality um, is that we don't often ask questions because we don't ask them of ourselves or of our God um, or of our world around us. And if, we, if we're unlikely to do that, then we probably won't ask others um, who are skeptical or cynical about faith. Um, Ellis Potter, he's a former Zen Buddhist monk. I don't know if you've come across his work or his person. A wonderful, wonderful man. He, uh, he writes in, in one of his books that questions thought, are thought to be associated with doubt are considered rebellious, unfaithful, and dangerous. So we often don't ask questions of our own faith, let alone ask questions um, of others. You know, I wonder if you can identify that. There are particular questions that we just don't ask because we're concerned that they may be considered rebellious, unfaithful, um, and dangerous. And this is where I think I found evangelism, persuasive evangelism, apologetics, whatever you want to call it, um, just so, so good for my soul. This is a form of pastoral care because it's as we ask these questions um, and we bring them to the Lord for ourselves to begin with and we receive what he has to say to us um, that it then just grows our hearts in such magnificent ways as we receive and taste and see his goodness that we're then able to share that with others. So whatever that nightmare question was that you just don't want to be asked, that might be a beautiful opportunity for you in this Lenten season um, as we go through this that's the last one, isn't it, of um, the discipleship school, but to really to press into that question for yourself and ask the Lord to reveal to you what it would look like to be able to give a good answer to that question and to ask questions in, um, in response to it. So why should we use questions? Just very quickly here. Um, here's 1 Peter 3.15. Someone, someone read that out for us very loudly. Would anyone like to do a dramatic reading of 1 Peter 3.15? Yeah, come on. If not, Jamie, I'm picking on you. Oh, were you going to do it, Emma? Yeah. Come on, Emma. It's also on the handout, if that's easier. Fear of... Have no fear of them, nor be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you to give you to give the reason for the hope that is in you but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience Brilliant, thanks so much. Beautifully read, Emma. Um, so here, Peter's writing to exiles. He's not writing to experts. These are people who are Christians who are in um, exile. They've been dispersed all across the regions. They're suffering for their faith. So here, Peter is writing to the accused. He's not writing to academics. And it's to the accused that he's saying, have, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Um, he starts with the heart in that sense, doesn't he? And not the mind. He's calling us to keep fit, to have a healthy heart here. And, and here he's presupposing questions about our hope. So how will we 
respond? How will we um, give the reason for the hope that is in us? How will we be prepared to do that? How will we provoke um, questions in such a way that they'll be able to ask us and we can answer and ask more questions? And Peter says, um, staggeringly, which is one of the things I love most about this, is he says that our apologetics are underlined or undermined uh, by our conscience. So being gentle um, and peaceable, that will either, um, incorporating that, will underline our, uh, our apologetics, and not having that will completely undermine it. So how we go about um, our conversations, the tone, the manner in which we conduct ourselves, really, really matters to God. And also, just a note here, that apologetics, it's not merely defensive. I don't know what, you know, some of the thoughts that you've had about what it means, you know, Gosh, I didn't like apologetics to begin with. I just thought it was a load of men who were basically shouting at each other across the room, and I just thought, I don't really want much to do with that. But then as I kind of got more and more into it, and I saw that actually, wow, this is really helping me to answer questions for myself and teaching me and training me how to answer others' questions um, by asking them questions, staggeringly revolutionary, um, that this can all, is also a form of persuasion, um, not just being kind of on the defensive all the time. So there's a little kind of, um, a little brief overview as to how, why Peter says that we should be prepared. Uh, we should ask questions. And so apologetics is a science and an art. It involves learning to give answers to certain questions, but often it's more helpful to learn to ask questions of other people's answers and even of their questions themselves. Behind every question is a person. Um, I was sent this quote um, earlier on, which I think will hopefully come up. Yes, thank you. Again, sorry, that's so small, isn't it? Um, this is um, a quote that is in John Stott's book, The Radical Disciple, and it's by this guy called Michael Ramsey. And, and he writes, We state and commend the faith, not only in so far as we go out, uh, sorry, only in so far as we go out and put ourselves in the doubts of the doubters, the questions of the questioners, and the loneliness of those who have lost their way. We state and commend the faith only in so far as we go out. Now, where is he getting this from? We're going to go to Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis 3, and we're going to look at the first person who evangelized. <laughs> who was the first evangelist? So we're going to follow God's methodology um, as the original kind of evangelistic method that helps us as we engage with questions and use questions. So again, just for a couple of minutes in groups, these are verses that you're probably quite familiar with, but if you just bring up Genesis 3 verse 1 and Genesis um, 3 verses 9 to 11, and then just ask these questions in, in that little kind of interaction, that drama that is unfolding in those verses. Who is asking? What are they asking? And why are they asking it? And then hopefully if you have time, ask one another, from what you've seen, what can we learn from God's evangelistic approach? What does this tell us about evangelism? Okay, two or three minutes. Okay, so I'm going to go through these quite quickly. I hope we have the same answers. I'm sure we do. So Genesis 3 verse 1, who is asking? The snake, yeah, the serpent. Great. Who is asking in Genesis 3, 9 to 11? Yeah, the Lord God. Okay. Um, so Genesis 3, 1, yeah, 3, verse 1. What is the serpent asking? I think next slide. Oh, no, not next slide. It has all the answers on it. Uh, what is the serpent asking? Did God really say it? Yeah, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Compa um, contrasting that, what does God say? 
Where are you? Yeah, what else do you say? Yes, why are you naked? Oh, so many voices, I can't hear you. What did you say? So sorry. Why are you afraid? Yeah, great. Um, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Yeah, great. And so why is a serpent asking, asking them, did God really say, do you think? To trip them up? To introduce doubt? Yes, all very good. To undermine God, yeah, and his good word, yeah. Ooh, yeah, so disconnection. Oh, that's good, yeah. I mean, it's not good, but it's a good ident- identification of it. It's great. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I've got here. Um, it causes them to doubt. It's enticing them. It's enticing them to disobey God um, in eating it. But why is God asking these questions? Why does God ask, where are you? Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Why does he ask those questions, do you think? So sorry. He wants, yes. Yeah, he, he, wants, he wants the man, he wants Adam to kind of realize, like, why, where is he hiding, that he is naked, that he is ashamed, and to come out. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not as though God didn't know, didn't know where they were. Um, he absolutely did. It's not as though he didn't know the answer. He's omnipotent. This is a, such a kind question for Adam, isn't it? It's loving. It's enabling. It's an educative question. It's a little bit like... Um, uh, I used to play hide and seek all the time with um, with kids from my former church, and um, yeah, before it began, you could just kind of you play hide and seek, you know, you know, ready or not, you know, here I come, kind of thing. And uh, it's like, where are you? And you can just hear them giggling somewhere. Like you always know where they are. Like you're not asking that question because you have no idea. <laughs> you're trying to kind of help them know that you're trying to find them, and you know, you're on your way to them. And, and so it's to help Adam um, to realize his condition that, that he is lost. And he responds with that true, excellent, and realistic answer, but a tragically sad one in verse 10. I am scared, I am naked, and I am hiding. And all of um, the children of Adam ever since have been doing exactly the same. Hiding um, in creation from the creator. That is the habit of humanity. Um, right now, this is what we're prone to do for us as well, aren't we? Even as Christians, we're hiding in status, performance, religion, intellect, uh, success, so many things. And so to learn to ask these kinds of questions that God's, God asks in our evangelism is to ask similar questions like, where are you? Uh, where are you in your identity? What are you hoping for? You know, what's your purpose? What do you fear? Um, what do you long for in relationships? And to ask a question like this is such a gift. It's a blessing to people because if they receive it and if they live with that question, then in the Spirit's hands, that can really lead to Christ. And it did for me. That was what happened um, for me when my mum actually didn't answer my questions. She asked me better ones and I didn't know what to do with it. And so it's a little bit like um, one of my friends, he was saying, um, (laughs) he was sharing this story well, it was a few weeks ago. He's a missionary in Romania. And there was this girl that he was talking to called Amber. Where is she? There she is. And um, she, he, he was telling a story that Amber just seemed completely unimpressed by Christianity, uh, with the idea of Christianity full stop, and, and told him quite firmly, um, you know, I don't need Jesus to define morality for me. I think I know what right and wrong is. You know, thanks very much. And uh, Luke, my mate, he was just, you know, he just thought that maybe he could say something like, well, you know, so if a person decides that murder is okay, um, then what's to say that, that they are wrong um, or, and that you are right? 
But then he thought, well, maybe that wouldn't be a very helpful question to ask, because that might be a little bit insulting, and it might assume that she's, she's a moral relativist. And so instead he asked, or said, yeah, I guess that's right. We all, we all, you know, we do pretty good at defining what right and wrong is for ourselves. But I'm curious, though, do you find that you're able to live up to your own moral code, or would you say you sometimes fall short on this? And she immediately admitted that she she does fall short of that. And from that, they had this really great discussion about you know, sin and humanity and hope, and the cross quickly followed. And so he, what he was doing there was he was applying God's questions of where are you hiding? Where are you? And, and asking that question of, well, can you live up to your own moral code? Are you guilty? So it's learning how to ask these questions a little bit differently, which we're going to keep looking at. Um, because... Um, next quote, I think, is going to come up. This is, this is from Peter Lightheart. He, uh, he's a Jesus lover and a theologian. And he wrote that God's word is not the end of a conversation, but an invitation to renew conversation. The triune God, the God whose life is an eternal conversation, does not create a world as a stage where he performs soliloquies before a respectfully hushed audience. God creates the world and humanity to enter into a dialogue. So we get to ask questions. We get to create a conversation because this is the way in which God reveals himself. So let's enter into dialogue. Um, as like God, we go out, and as that earlier quote said, you know, we put ourselves um, in the doubts of the doubtless, the questions of the questioners, and in the loneliness of those who have lost their way. So let's do that now. Again, um, back in groups, take take any question. What is a question that you've been asked recently? Or maybe use your nightmare question and think through it um, like this. Who is asking you and why might they be asking that question? So what might their story or their struggle be? And how might that affect where you would be heading in the gospel? So who might be asking and why? What's their story struggle? And how might that affect where you'd be heading in the gospel? Okay, please keep those conversations going later on as you keep kind of thinking about who is asking, why are they asking? Because this is really going to help us to get underneath the skin of some of their questions. So if you bring those conversations to a close, so sorry. Okay, and just as you continue to kind of like think upon that as we, as we go through and beyond this evening as well, um, just a little note there that it's really important that we clarify, we clarify the problem. So are they asking because they really want this to something to be true, but they don't think it could be true? Or are they asking because they really don't want this to be true, but they fear that it might be true? That is going to really help us think what is the next best question to ask. And so that really does affect where we're then heading with the gospel, doesn't it? So again, there's a common mistake here that um, somebody might ask, you know, how can there be just one true faith? And say that person is a postmodern, you know, they don't believe that there are these overarching um, meta-narratives by which we live our lives. You know, instead we create them, we create meaning for ourselves. But then they choose to objectively critique by saying, how can there be just one true faith? That sounds like what they've done is created their own overarching truth claim um, rather than um, identify that there is, that there could be, that there could be truth. So think carefully about what it is they're saying and how, that how, how are they saying it. 
Um, because we really want to be loving our friends, our colleagues, our family members well, don't we? Which I know is why you're here. This is what you want to be doing. Um, and Francis Schaeffer has a lot to say on this. Um, he says, you know, do you love the people you're about to speak to? If not, sit down. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep standing because I really love you. So we'll keep going. Because... <laughs> um, <laughs> Now he also goes on to say that students leave, he's talking about sem seminary settings here, um, students leave not knowing how to relate Christianity to the surrounding world. It's not that they don't know the answers. My observation is that most students who are graduating from our seminaries do not know the questions. So that is a challenge for us, isn't it? What are the questions that people are asking and how do we answer them? So we've seen how, how God does this in the garden. He asks, where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? These are questions about identity, guilt, and location. And now, again, very quickly, we're going to look at um, Luke 18, which is, I will read this to us, uh, which is here. So Luke 18, verse 18 on. So a certain ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so reflect on those verses. Who's asking this question? How does Jesus respond? And uh, what does Jesus' question do? Who's asking how they respond? What does Jesus' question do? Again, just a minute or two. Okay, so who's asking this question? Who is asking the question? Say it as you see it. Just a certain, a certain ruler, yes. Um, how does Jesus respond? What does he say? Yes, with a question. And what is the question? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Why does Jesus ask that? What does that question do? Yes, it puts all the focus on God. Yeah, beautiful. How does it do that? Oh, yeah, get the microphone. Self. He doesn't want to be called good. He wants all the glory and all the attention and praise to go to God. Jesus does. To Je yeah, yeah, Jesus does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. So this is, as Jesus responds, he's, he's helping this man to encounter a very different standard of goodness. So, you know, for a long time, wealth, wealth was a, um, a measurement of goodness. And this man was very, very wealthy. And so the, in the eyes of those around him, they'd thought, well, he's a good man. Look how God is blessing him through, through this abundant kind of material wealth. And instead, you know, Jesus asked, well, well why do you call me good? Because nobody's good except, except God alone. He's, he's helping him to encounter God's divine standard, which is follow me, not 
hoard wealth. And so that's where that, that question really cuts on so many levels. So given what we've seen of, of God's approach um, in Genesis 3, it's really no surprising then that when Jesus comes, he not only preached the kingdom in word and in deed, but he also asked questions. He asked questions all the time. And according to one source, um, he asked over, I think, 170 questions. That's a staggering, staggering amount. And Jesus does exactly the same thing, of course, as the eternal son takes on flesh, as we saw the Lord God doing in the garden in Genesis 3. There are different types of questions um, for different purposes. And again, you know, in the lead up to Easter, if you wanted to, you could read through Jesus' last days and just see how he uses questions um, before Pilate and on the cross. It's, it's, it's truly, truly remarkable. And he's, he's using questions as a way to communicate um, with people. It's a way to stimulate an appetite for truth, um, a way to grow hunger um, in people whilst enabling them to reach a better understanding of themselves and their world um, and their God. So yes, there is a place for proclamation. We want to get there, but it's not everywhere, um, according to Randy Newman, who is a wonderful evangelist. You may have come across his book, Questioning Evangelism. Um, there are three ingredients to persuasive evangelism that he outlines. Um, that's declaring Christ. I think it might come up on the slide. Um, defending Christ and dialoguing Christ. And that's what we're thinking about. You know, he writes that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But this is simply not true, and it's not always appropriate to use a hammer. And he talks about how you must not replace a light bulb with a hammer, for example. Don't do that. There are more tools in the toolbox for us to use in commending and in sharing Christ. So there isn't, um, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to doing this in the New Testament. There's a core message, absolutely, but it's adapted and it's connected uniquely to its context. And so God's approach is Christ's approach, which is the apostles' approach. So if you wanted to read more about that, you could see that in Acts 16, Acts 17. So then how do we actually go about um, making the most of questions? So you've thought about questions that, you, you know, the questions that you would like to have answered for yourself, uh, the nightmare questions you don't want to be asked by someone else, um, a little bit about how does God use this in the garden. We've seen how Jesus uses it to provoke and to encounter him. Um, how, do we, how do we use questions? We'll have some practical examples in a moment, but firstly, um, we, want to engage, we want to engage the heart. Um, Andrew Wilson, he, in his book, If God, Then What? You may have read this. He writes this. He says, that's why I like questions. People in conversations ask questions all the time because they're the way you establish what somebody else believes and for that matter, what you believe. Questions make conversations two-way, interested, open-minded, creative. I probably asked more questions in three minutes of conversation with my wife than I did in three years of university debating competitions. And it's because I genuinely care what she thinks. Love asks. Love asks. It's beautiful, isn't it? So we must ask questions out of a real interest for others. You know, questions shouldn't just be another technique. Um, and a way to stop us um, from doing that is by developing a love for people and for things that they're interested in. 
Um, if you want to, you could read more about this. Um, C.S. Lewis writes about this. Um, you know, the, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, you probably know him really well, you know, Aslan, love him. And he wrote this on forced friendship. He says that friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of those companions discover they have in common some insight or interest or taste which the other did not share, which until that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. Hence we picture lovers face to face, but friends side by side, their eyes look ahead. That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about and friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Friendship must be about something. And Jesus gives us all the resources that we need to engage with real um, loving interest. How does he do that? He does this firstly through the way in which he's made the world. So it's through the doctrine of creation. Everything that your friends enjoy, your colleagues enjoy, has been created by God. And, and we know the God who is the giver of all good gifts, don't we? Um, again, C.S. Lewis, he's got this lovely little essay called Meditation in a Tool Shed, nonetheless, um, where, where he's, he's literally sitting in a tool shed. And um, <laughs> he just sees that there's, this, um, that there's a hole in the roof. And through this hole in the roof, there's this beam of light that's just starting to kind of, you know, just, just pour through. And as he sees that beam of light, he starts to see all these specks of dust, you know, just dancing in the light. And as he looks at those specks of dust and as he sees the light, he follows that beam up and he looks up through the roof and then he sees like the green, the green leaves on the trees. He sees the blue sky um, beyond that. He sees the sun from which um, the light um, is emanating. And he then makes this comment. He says, one must look both along and at everything. Now, how does that help us? What we're going to do is we're going to play the game chase the sunbeam. I, I hope you haven't played this before. This is quite fun. So we're going to look at good things. So just shout out, what are good things that you or your friends, colleagues, etc., enjoy? What are they? What do you like doing, eating, whatever? What is it? Chocolate, yes. Any particular type of chocolate? Dairy milk. Very good. Oh, okay. Controversial. I, I see after Kraft took it over, I'm just not sure it's the same anymore. It's just normal. But we'll go with that. Okay, chocolate, dairy milk, fine. Um, what else? Cycling. Cycling. Yes, fantastic. What else? Mangoes. Lovely. Ah, oh, mangoes. I haven't had mangoes in ages. Thank you so much for reminding me of mangoes. Yeah. What else? Singing. Singing. Fantastic. Yeah, what else? Keep going. Swimming, lovely. Sushi, yeah, oh, nice. What was that? Wine, particular choice, red, white, rosé? Red, excellent. Shiraz? Merlot, oh, interesting, that tells me a lot about you. Um, <laughs> now, as we look at these good things, we get to look along the beam of those good things, don't we? So these good things contain something really, really good. And as we follow these beams, where do those beams of light 
when those beams of light lead us, as we follow the, the beam up from wine, cycling, swimming, sushi, who is at the other end? The creator, yeah, it's Jesus. It's really simple, isn't it? But it's just, it's just, I love playing this game because it just reminds me that, hang on, all the things that my friends are enjoying, they're enjoying it to some extent because it's good, but it's been distorted in some way. So, you know, you're thinking about friends who are basically drinking excessively. Um, they're experiencing the glory of God in absentia. There is excess there, and they're substituting that um, with, with alcohol rather than the glory of God. And so there's much here for us to kind of dig into as we think about um, how we look at these good, good things. And also, he's given us us. It's the way he's made us as humans. He gives us this resource to be able to engage with real loving interest, because he's given us the capacity to love anyone. Um, Jeremy Bars writes this um, on the doctrine of humanity, which is, you know, that we're made in the image of God. He writes, as we begin to get to know every person we meet, we need to ask ourselves, how does this person demonstrate the image of God? Where do I see even the slightest evidence of a seeking heart or of any response to or enjoyment of God's gifts of general grace that he pours on all people so richly? These will always be present, even in the most hardened person, no matter what their belief system or way of life. There, in the greedy, corrupt, idolatrous heart of Zacchaeus, was some little interest in learning who Jesus was. Such sparks of true humanity exist in everyone. Will we have eyes to see those sparks? Will we have eyes to see those sparks? So secondly, so we want to engage the heart creation, humanity, and we also want to engage our brains. So this is where, um, if you've probably come across Tim Keller, he has this um, lovely way of talking about how the gospel story connects in the deepest ways with our friends' stories. He says, you need to tell the Christian story in a way that addresses the things uh, that people most want for their own lives and the things that they're trying to find outside of Christianity and show how Christianity can give them the answer. So here's an example, and here's also a way in which you can trace that sunbeam um, back, is um, a friend of mine was at an art gallery, um, I think, let's go for the National Art Gallery in London, I was there the other day, have you seen the, the Gerrit von Haunthorst painting of Christ before the high priest, it is stunning, oh my goodness, it, it, is, it, is, it is huge, it is utterly huge, and, um, and so anyway, we were in this art gallery, and um, kind of, I just saw somebody, and I was like, oh, you seem to be, you know, this is a stunning picture, isn't it? Um, this is a nice piece of art, you know, why, why do you like it? You seem to be, you seem to be quite, you know, quite enwrapped with this. And they were like, oh, you know, well, I just think it's quite lovely, isn't it? And I was like, oh, well, you know, what, what, what is beauty? And they're like, oh, well, you know, I think it's, it's just, you know, it's beautiful things, isn't it? Things that are beautiful, you know, they're just, they're a joy to behold, et cetera, et cetera. And then I asked, well, you know, why are things beautiful, do you think? And then you can ask, where do you think that that beauty comes from? So you've gone from, here's something great, why do you like it? What is beauty? Why are things beautiful? Where do you think that comes from? That, that helps us to like, trace the sunbeam back up. And again, we've asked those questions um, in a way that helps them um, to, to kind of explore and to consider God, and then we can give an answer. And so thirdly, we also, we're going to go through this very quickly, and I'm going to give you lots to think about. Lastly, we also want to think about engaging our ears. Now, I'm sure most of you are very good listeners, so I don't know where you are on the scale of, um, you know, being slow to speak um, and, and quick to listen, or you might be kind of 
She's very quick to speak um, and slow to listen. Is that the same thing I just said twice? That, that, but the other way around, which is when you are, gosh, this is very taxing. What's that sentence? When you are slow to speak, what? <laughs> Someone help. Huh? Quick to listen, slow to speak. Yes. Rather than being, what's the other one? <laughs> What's your, quick to speak, slow to listen, or quick to speak, and then, then what? That, you know what I'm trying to say, that, take that. So if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his, it is his folly and his shame. So it's only after that we've, we've listened and that, were, that we're then able to then speak because those questions, as we listen, help hone and clarify how it is that we then give an answer because the right answer to the wrong question is always wrong. You could be saying exactly the right things, but if that isn't the question and they're asking, then, then there's no point in saying it whatsoever. It's not going to land. And so we're not just waiting for our next chance to speak. We want to listen actively and think and listen as they're speaking. How is this person hiding and afraid and naked? Where, where is their guilt as they're speaking about this? Um, John Lennox, he always says, keep asking questions until they ask you questions back, and it works. <laughs> keep doing it. It's so, so good. Because asking questions does these things. It honors and respects the person. It exposes contradictions. It clarifies the real issue. It forces people to think. It opens people up within their assumptions. It exposes motives. It keeps the conversation going. Um, a friend of mine who works in a secular university setting, um, and, and his students know that he believes that there is a hell. And so his students came up to him and said, um, well, do you think that everybody who disagrees with you is essentially going to end up in hell? And rather than kind of go into, you know, yeah, just the boring stuff of, you know, theology, which is really good, rather than kind of give a really long, um, complicated answer, um, he instead responded by asking the, the students whether or not they believed in hell. Do you think that there's a hell? And one of them said that they did. They did think that there was a hell. And so then what he did was he named a, a famous perpetrator um, of genocide and asked that student that um, if he thought that that criminal was in hell or not. And the student said, well, of course I do. To which my friend responded by asking, well, how do you think God decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Do you think he, he grades on a curve? And then, and then after that, they spent, um, him and, and these students spend a long time in deep discussion about the nature of God um, and of sin and of forgiveness. And by asking those questions, he's kind of, he's taken the heat off of himself and he's made it very clear that hell is an issue that everybody has to grapple with, not just him. He's turned it from something that they were trying to corner with him to a much bigger question of justice um, and that how this is something that we all have to think about and account for ourselves. So um, if there was time, you could think about what questions could you ask in response to that nightmare question? That would be a great thing to think about maybe as you walk or if you take the tube back or whatever it is. What questions could you ask? Here are a few questions that you could ask. Um, what do you mean by that? So if somebody says something to you, a great question to ask in response is, well, well what do you mean by that? So if someone says, well, you know, life is all just about love, isn't it? It's just about um, fulfilling kind of our, our sexual natures and our identities. That's what it's all about. You could say, well, what do you mean by that? And then you could say something like, well, 
as they, as they then give, after they've given a response, you're going to say, well, have you ever wondered, like, why these things matter so much to us? And then after that, you could say, well, what do you think about that? So, um, for example, um, another friend, these are all my friends, I, I, I'm very bad at doing this in practice, um, particularly when you're put on the spot, it's quite scary, isn't it? And then a friend of mine was kind of telling me how um, someone came up to him and they were talking about, um, I think it was like the war in Ukraine, and they were just saying this is utterly, utterly wrong, it's utterly, utterly evil. And um, my friend in response to that said to them, well, you know what, you sound a lot like a Christian who believes um, that God made people in his image and that therefore are, are precious to him, rather than an atheist who thinks that we are just the, the summation of a, a cosmic accident. What do you think about that? You sound to me like you're more like, more, it's sounding more like a Christian right now. What do you think about that? So these are just some questions that you could ask. What do you mean by that? Have you ever wondered? What do you think about that? Because all of this, just finally, it takes, it takes time, doesn't it? And it takes a lot of wisdom um, as, we, as, we, as we move into this. Um, again, Randy Newman, just, I'm just going to read the, the first and last bit of this quote. He writes that witnessing to family and to colleagues, etc., it takes, it takes wisdom, knowing when to say more or when to hold back, choosing when to take the long approach or when to call for a decision. Then he says, rest in this. God desires for his gospel to go forth. He longs to see your relatives saved. And he chooses to use imperfect spokespersons to deliver his perfect word. And all that takes time. So this all takes time. It takes hard work to think, how does the gospel story connect um, with the desires, the longings, the hiddenness, the, the guilt and the shame um, of our friends and their deep heart questions. That takes a lot of work. And partly, I haven't answered those questions because I'd love you to think about what are those questions that you can ask um, in response to those. Um, so rest in that. Rest in the fact that, that God longs for them, longs for them um, to be saved. And also rest in this. Um, just finally, here's, here's John Stott in his magnum opus, The Cross of Christ, which you may have come across. Um, he writes, we will never understand what the cross has done for us unless we first understand it is something done by us. You know, as we approach Easter, what's a lovely thing to consider that we get to not run from our, our nakedness, our shame and our poverty. We receive Christ and he takes he, take, he takes it and he covers it on the cross so that we can receive his riches, his sight, his clothing. Such a profound love in him, don't we? And it's as we look to him that the embers of our, of our hearts are just kind of stoked in, into flame, fanned into flame. And it's as we, as we see the cross is for us because it's something done by us that we want to share God's goodness with others. Here's a Puritan, Richard Sibbs. He writes, God is goodness itself in whom all goodness is involved. If therefore we love other things for the goodness which we see in them, why do we not love God in whom is all goodness? All other things are but sparks of that fire and drops of that sea. If you see any good, any good in nature, remember there is much more in the creator. Leave therefore the streams and go to the fountainhead of comfort. Go to the fountainhead of comfort. Rest in the cross of Christ, who brings us to himself so that we can receive the fountain of all comfort. So as we finish, 
why don't we just pray like for those names that you'd written down at the start. Um, pray for them by name, maybe in twos um, or threes. And let's pray that, that they might go to the fountainhead of goodness as they receive God's goodness from through, through the cross. Okay, we'll just pray for a couple of minutes and there might be time for Q&A. Brilliant. Let's keep going on praying um, for, um, for those people. Um, and can we just um, give a round of applause? Thank you so, so much, Christy. Um, so, so much that you've opened up for us tonight and so many thoughts and directions. And, and um, I feel like you set us all a lot of homework um, um, and things to think about and things to put into practice. So thank you so much. And um, we've got a little bit of time for some questions. Uh, glamorous assistants running around with microphones, um, Tim Jones and Jago Wynn. And Anthony, Anthony is equally as glamorous. Um, and uh, um, so I just wondered, does anyone here have a question for Christy? Hi, great talk. What's, what's your most hated question that you've been asked that you've had trouble to answer? And what was your answer? <laughs> see what you've done there. Turn the tables. Very good. Very good. Well, I think to begin with, I mean, this is why I'm doing the PhD, is that I, I was sitting with the question, how do we know what is true? Like, what is truth? And particularly when I was kind of coming along to church, and I was hearing some people say, there's only one way to read um, particular scriptures. Um, and then others would be like, oh no, there's like loads of ways to read it. And then I was at a Pentecostal church at the time and just loved it. And I just saw my brothers and sisters just worshiping the Lord. And I was like, my goodness, how does, how does this joy fit in with these different things? And what is, so what is truth and how does that impact our lives? And how do I know that what I'm being told in the Bible <laughs> is, is, is genuinely just true? And it's not just kind of a made up, um, thing that's been put together as, as, as a result of, um, you know, corruption or as a result of kind of just cultural assumptions about this or that. How do I actually know what scripture is saying? And so this is, that for me was the big question because then I thought, how do I actually trust, how do I trust um, my pastor? And also, how do I trust my friends when they talk about their life? This was, this was just a really big thing for me and particularly just feeling very betrayed by people who, who would say, this is true, <laughs> uh, believe me, and then would kind of a, a, abuse that truth in some ways. So I started, I started with those questions, um, what is truth? And I think the way in which I've, the Lord has kind of led me to answers is partly just through the time that I've had to be able to read and study them. So particularly kind of looking at, there's a missiologist called Leslie Newbigin, and he writes that the gospel is um, culturally conditioned. There is no culture-free gospel, which at the sound of it sounds like, whoa, it sounds a little bit weird. Like, what does he mean by that? And what he's saying is that even the people, is that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. You know, we, we read the Bibles in English. So again, you're thinking, well, if there is no culture-free gospel in that there are these transcendent truths of the gospel that exist, but they cannot be communicated in a way that transcends culture. So even Aramaic is God's accommodation to us. You know, it's, it, it's a way in which he, he reveals himself to us. That's, that's not the language of heaven. And, and that is a culturally conditioned language through which he reveals himself. So I started on those questions and then kind of moved into looking at missiologists and how they kind of answer those questions, looking at different perspectives. And then I got to like Michael Polanyi and his, his kind of thing of 
what is knowledge, which we could talk about later if you're interested. Oh, that's the misogynist, yeah. No, no, definitely not a misogynist. I think he was very, very much honoured, honoured the women. A miso missiologist is somebody who studies um, missions, like how you go about doing that cross-culturally and what that looks like. Yeah, oh my word, don't tweet that, it's definitely not. I'm glad we've cleared that one up. Um, um, uh, Rosie Allen, Rosie. Uh, oh, good. It, it's a, um, just very interested, what were the questions your mother asked you uh, that challenged you? Can you remember? Just uh, got children myself who are questioning everything, and I'm interested to know what your mother asked you and how she did it and when she did it. Thanks so much for asking. She, um, a lot of it, I think, was fueled by by patience. So I remember she asked me the same questions again and again. But I remember I was asking her a lot of questions in my anger and in my pain, like how on earth could God let this happen? And what I really appreciate about what she said to me was that she didn't have a neat answer. So she actually said to me, you know, you know what, Christy, I don't know. Um, but I want to think about this and we should keep talking about this together. So to begin with, I think at the time I was talking to Christians who just seemed to have all the pat right answers. And to me, that just sounded so dis existentially dissatisfying as well as intellectually so. And then, um, and then I started asking her, because then she didn't bring it up again after that. I was like, Mum, why aren't you talking about this? Is it because you don't have an answer and you know, you're just scared to tell me that? She's like, no, I'm just waiting for you to kind of to talk to me about it. I was like, oh, well, why did you want me to talk about it? Well, it seems like the God that you, that you are rallying against right now, you're thinking, well, he has to exist for you to hate him so much. Like, don't you think? And I just started crying. And, um, and then she said, look, Christy, you've heard so much about, about Jesus. You know your indecision is a decision, don't you? And again, I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and I had to just think about that for a long time. And I think, and so I didn't have an answer or a response really in those moments, but those questions I think planted seeds and then helped me to think, well, yeah, my, my anger is the fruit of thinking that God does exist. And hearing what all that I have about Jesus, not responding to him is a response. So what am I going to do with this grit in my shoe that is Jesus? And I've got options here. Is he really who he says he is? And so can I trust him with my heart and my hurt and my pain? And can I only actually call pain, pain, because God exists? And I think she was just helping me to see that I can't, I can't cry unless there's a God who helps me to see that there is goodness and a moral standard, or you're just left with blind, pitiless indifference and a universe that just says, well, you know, who cares about you? Like, stop it. You should never even notice in the first place that something was wrong, let alone weep about it. But this is breaking your heart. And there's only one who can, who can bind your heart and put your heart back together again. So it was really through those questions and they lingered um, and the spirit just used that to, to provoke things as I then read the gospels for myself late at night. I think she wrote in her diary once, she showed me a few, a few years ago. She was like, Christy stayed up all last night reading Mark's gospel. <laughs> I was like, ah, first and last time. <laughs> no, just joking, joking, yeah. Uh, one more question, yeah, Tim. I have a three-part question. Um, I guess that's technically okay. Uh, 
Is there such thing as an evangelist, as the New Testament especially seems to talk about? What's the relationship between evangelists and everyone else? And if there are evangelists, and there are these specially gifted people, then what is the onus on everyone else? Oh, what a lovely question. What a lovely three-part question, sorry. Thank you so much. Um, are, there, are there evangelists? Yes, they are. there are, in, a, in terms of God gives um, particular gifts of evangelists to the church. You have a gift of evangelism. Um, the second question was? What's the relationship between evangelists and everyone else? Yes. And then how... What, should, how, what would you say to people who feel like, well, what's my role if there are these special people? Yeah, great. So, so there are particular gifts of evangelism that are identified within a church in which God raises among, alongside kind of teachers, um, pastors, etc. Um, however, that doesn't mean that, that it just... <laughs> that it just kind of ushers all of the evangelism into that one evangelism bag which these special people kind of carry around. Um, for that, I think I'd look to the Great Commission and, and where, you know, Jesus says, you know, make disciples of the nations and, and I will be with you to the ends of the earth as you do that. So that therefore doesn't mean that, oh gosh, you know, I'm a worse Christian because I don't think I have this special gift of evangelism. Actually, you might do. And this is where, you know, it's the beauty of, of um, your church family and community in helping us to kind of identify what those particular gifts are that, that God has given to one another. But we're also all, as, as Christians, called to evangelize like with a little e. So it might not be the thing that you think, okay, I'm going to become a professional evangelist and this is going to be the way in which I, um, I spend all of my days every day. Um, but it is what you get to do as a Christian um, who, who is known and loved by Jesus um, by sharing and holding out the word of life um, to, to a dark and crooked generation. We are all called to shine like stars in that. Um, and so I think the, the relationship between them is one of training, but also of receiving and, and us all going out as a church family. So that doesn't mean that those who have a particular gift in evangelism are therefore like super Christians. The beautiful thing about the cross is, isn't it, that, is that it, it equals the ground um, beneath Jesus's feet. And so we're all, we're all sinners who have received this, um, the goodness of God um, and are his, his sons and his daughters. And so there's no hierarchy in the kingdom. We all just get to discover what those gifts are that God has given us. And so I'd encourage you to maybe ask Jago or people who know you well here um, to start exploring that. Like what, what are the gifts that God has given you and how can you cherish that and steward that and water it and, and nourish it so that you can exhort and edify God's people and go out and share that with the with a dying world who really, really needs, needs the love of God. Um, I hope that helps. Sorry, much to say on that. We can keep chatting. Brilliant. Tim's actually one of our associate ministers here um, at, at HCC, who, 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 who has a particular passion for evangelism. So I, just, I, I think it's why, what was behind the three-pronged question. Um, <laughs> but thank you for the question and thank you for the answers. Um, brilliant. Um, um, let's give a round of applause to Christy. Christy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, such, such, a, such a helpful um, session for us all tonight and, a, and a, an amazing way for us to end the, the Lent Discipleship School. Um, and just to say too that for, for us as we're thinking about and praying about how we do this um, out there, there are also opportunities to do that uh, in here um, as part of, in, inside this, this very building. Um, I was thinking as Christy was speaking, the different things that, that 
that um, she's inviting us to do, of, um, of listening and asking questions. They're, they're two of the key ingredients that make up um, Alpha. And um, actually, when you're a, a helper in an Alpha group, uh, your job is to listen. Um, and when you're a host in an Alpha group, um, your, your job is to ask questions. And that's really as complicated as it is. Um, and if you would like to be involved in helping or, or hosting uh, on our next Alpha uh, course, which is taking place um, towards the end of April, uh, can I encourage you to chat to Tim Jones, um, who was asking that question before. Um, um, I think most of you know who, who he is. Uh, so tim.jones at holytrinityclapham.org um, is also the, the email um, way to communicate with him. Um, um, but thank you so, so much um, for coming along um, tonight. Uh, let me pray for us as we close. God, thank you for that uh, reality that we've been reminded of tonight, of uh, your heart, your uh, burning love for uh, each of the people that are on our hearts. Uh, Lord, thank you um, that you've not only uh, reached out to us, uh, but you've put within us uh, your Holy Spirit. And so God, would we um, rest and trust in your sovereignty? Would we rest and trust in uh, your presence with us? And God, would you um, give us that uh, ability to identify what is, is going on in a conversation, uh, to not feel overwhelmed, but just to, to witness to your peace and presence and uh, to be like you, Jesus, to b become more and more like you and, and to ask the questions that are gonna open things up for people, uh, open up um, motives, open up desires, and open up beliefs. And so God, would you send us out from here to um, love and work to your praise and glory uh, Lord, would you uh, help us to have uh, conversations well? And would you continue to inspire us as we, as we pray for, for people as well? In Jesus' name, amen.